Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Well, we are back with another episode of Off the Wall with Jessica and I, and we are really excited about today because we have another great guest that Jessica is going to introduce in a second. But thanks for tuning back in. We've had a couple of great episodes. Make sure you go back to our website and check out some of the previous episodes that we've had they become very popular, we go in and see the data and people are really downloading and they're resonating with people. So this is a great follow-up to some of the ones that we've recently published. But with that, Jessica, why don't you go ahead and introduce today's guest? Yes, our guest today is Dr. Brian Portnoy. He is one of the world's leading experts in the psychology of money. So that's why Dave and I are so excited to have him on today. Brian is a CFA charter holder who has over 20 years of experience as a portfolio manager and educator in the mutual fund and hedge fund industries. He's also written multiple best-selling books, including The Investor's Paradox, which speaks to how difficult it is for investors to choose the right investments. But the book we're actually going to focus on today is his book called The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Yeah, I didn't realize at first that we were fellow veteran CFA charter holders, haven't gone through the brutality of those exams. I don't know how long ago you took it, but geez, I look at the way my life is now. I don't know how I could have ever studied for that back then. I don't know how long ago you took it. It was a death march, and I did it around 2000, 2001. Same. It's an unpleasant memory. <laughs> that level two was all written back then. There was no multiple choice. That was the big hurdle that we had to get over back in those days was the level two part. Yeah, detailed questions <laughs> on international accounting treatments, <laughs> which weren't relevant and remain irrelevant to my life, were the bane of my existence. Switching gears back to the book. I want to open by reading a quote from your book about distinguishing between rich and wealthy. So the quote is, being rich is having more. The push for more is a treadmill on which satisfaction is typically fleeting. Wealth, by contrast, is funded contentment. It is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, however one chooses to define that. So I hear that, and obviously, wealth sounds a lot better than rich. Can you talk a little more about this distinction and how we can achieve wealth? That passage is, I don't know if it's page one or page two, but it's sort of my opening salvo in the geometry of wealth. And in some ways, it's a pretty straightforward distinction. In other ways, there are like levels upon levels that we can explore. Generally, in the world of money, it's relatively easy to focus on the numbers and the figures, the quantitative piece, because you can have X number of dollars, and then, oh, now I have more than X, and you can consider that to be progress. But we know, not only from proper scientific research, but just intuitively in our day-to-day -day lives, that those numbers don't necessarily correlate to the life that we want to live. And so what I wanted to do in this book, which I kind of positioned, I mean, the book five years ago, but I positioned as the prequel to my 
prior book, which came out 10 years ago, was that maybe we should focus less on the numbers and focus more on the meaning. And that's a good thing, but it also puts a bit of a burden on all of us to think about the life that we want to live and where money fits into that. And so, yeah, rich, it's a number on a page, in a balance sheet, on a portfolio. And sure, at a moment in time, it feels good to have a little bit more. But we know, as I allude to in the quote, there's something in social psychology known as the hedonic treadmill. It's the idea that the feeling of once you get more, you then want a little bit more. And that sort of never ends. And we're wired that way. Versus embracing wealth as a mindset and not a number. And that if we want to navigate this incredibly noisy and sometimes stressful world, we can do a little bit of work that gets us into a mindset where we have calibrated what's truly important to us, having nothing to do with money, but what's truly important to us. And then what are those things cost? Can we afford the things that are quite meaningful to us? And I'll just wrap this point by saying that often the things that are most meaningful to us are either free or quite affordable. And that's a really good thing if we allow ourselves to embrace that answer. So let's talk more about happiness, because I would imagine that when you mention things that are free, that are of the most value, I mean, happiness is probably at the core of that. <laughs> is that a good way to say it? Well, okay. So, I mean, we're going to have to click for detail yeah. a little bit on what we mean by happiness and what I've written about, what I teach and coach now is that the debate over happiness has been going on for close to 3,000 years now. We can go back to the ancient Greeks and follow that thread all the way through to today and one TED Talk after another on the exact same thing. And the consistent thread through this multi-millennium discussion is that there is the hedonistic perspective on happiness. And I don't say hedonism has sort of a negative connotation, but I just say that to mean that we want to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, which of course we do. And that's one version of happiness. But there's another version of happiness, what I refer to as reflective happiness. Others might call life satisfaction. There's a lot of different terminology. But it's simply the idea that we want to lead a good life. We want to have meaning and purpose in our life. And those aren't necessarily the dopamine hits that we all strive for here in modern days. It's more of a reflective moment where you step back and ask yourself or with your loved ones, ask what's really, really meaningful here. That's harder work, but with a bigger payoff. And so when we talk about happiness and then happiness in the context of money and what we can afford and not afford, I think it's really, really important to distinguish between what I call reflective happiness, that step back, versus the more hedonistic version, what I call experienced happiness, just the day-to-day -day of a good mood versus a bad mood. Yeah, I like how in the book you talk about experienced happiness, it, shorter in duration versus reflective happiness, longer in duration. That seemed to resonate with me. You also had an interesting part. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, but I remember it resonating with me when I read it. But it was how to distinguish the difference between being rich and being wealthy really factors into this too. And it was more along the lines of being rich is that treadmill that you talked about before, the hedonic treadmill. I love that. Whereas wealth is more about 
how content you are and your ability to underwrite that meaningful life, however you choose to define that meaningful life. And really, that's the difference between being rich and having more and being wealthy. That's right. I might punctuate it by just saying that more is a number and enough is a mindset. And so when we can begin to think about sort of how much is enough and the balance or equilibrium or homeostasis, as neuroscientists might call it, or biologists, getting away from the numbers and embracing the work that's required to build and maintain the right mindset, that's an opportunity for all of us. And honestly, it's an opportunity within the global wealth management industry that historically has been more about buying and selling securities. And now at least some doors are opening where wealth advisors and their clients can have the conversations about the things they really want to talk about because historically there was a bit of theater going on where an advisor would be an economist and a market strategist and those sorts of things. And the client believes or pretends that they care or really understand what all this market prognostication is. And what I'm observing from the seat that I'm in is that that script is increasingly being discarded, which is great. And there's just more of a focus on the number one question that's being asked often implicitly, which is, am I going to be okay? Are my loved ones going to be okay? And how do I answer that? And there are financial answers and non-financial answers, but obviously in the context of financial advice, you're going to focus more on the money. So, hey, am I going to be okay? And there's really no number on a balance sheet or a portfolio that's going to get you all the way there. And the answer to that question, we suss it out all the time when we do our financial planning with clients, which is because there's a continuation to that. Am I going to be okay? And then if not, if the way I want to live or what I'm doing right now, I'm not okay. What do I need to do to get back on track and fix it? Because not everybody's going to get a, am I okay? Yeah, you're great. We see people all the time. Am I okay with not the way you're spending money right now? We're not the way you're invested right now, but here's what we need to do to get you to okay. Comes up all the time. Part of the challenge here is introducing concepts like purpose and values into the dialogue around money. Oftentimes, people don't want to go there. An advisor doesn't want to go there. The clients don't want to go there. And again, it comes back to some of that theater and the scripting where this is about market prognostication and picking better investments and things in that direction. But my firm belief is that if we're not engaged in what I call purpose-based planning, which, by the way, is distinct from goals-based planning, if we're not engaged in purpose-based planning, then we have diminished the chance that we're truly going to achieve funded contentment, that ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. And part of the trick is, how do you have those conversations? Maybe over the last five, 10 years, they've become more commonplace in a financial advice context, but that's really not the history of the industry. I like to think about a half-century arc from Gordon Gecko to Brene <laughs> Brown, where this used to be about blue horseshoe loving Anacott Steel. Right, greed is good. Yeah, greed is good and Teldar paper and all that stuff. And fast forward from then, and it really has been 50 years, we can think about, and Brene Brown is sort of the patron saint of the company that I run now. She's so wise and smart and interesting and talks about courage and vulnerability and really getting in touch with who we are, but also who we want to be, but not like in a 
woo-woo kind of way. This isn't pie in the sky, head in the cloud stuff. It's like, hey, who doesn't want to live a good life? Who doesn't want to be a little bit better? How do you get there? Coming full circle, obviously, the theme here is it's not found in the numbers. It's found in the conversation. It's found in empathetic relationships that elevate everybody involved in the conversation. Do you have any thoughts on if someone's listening to this and kind of realizing, okay, I've been living in the experienced happiness world. I've been on the treadmill. Do you have any thoughts on how you move from thinking about experienced happiness to reflective happiness? Because I feel like what I took from your book is that it's kind of like a continuum. They are kind of on either sides, but they are connected in a way. So how do you kind of move along the continuum? First thing I'd frame it a little bit is to stipulate that they're not mutually exclusive. It's sort of different parts of our brain. It's different brain chemicals. It's different parts of our evolutionary biology that are kicking in at any particular moment. I mean, let's keep in mind that 99% plus of our brain activity is we're unaware of it. The subconscious is just going full tilt all the time. And the things we think, the emotions we feel, the decisions we make, those are usually decided well before you are aware of them. Today's topic is not evolutionary biology, so we won't dig too deep into there. So I don't want to leave the impression that you sort of have a choice between the day-to-day happiness and the big-picture reflective happiness. We are stuck, and not in a bad way. We're in the day-to-day, and yes, we want good things to happen, but we also should acknowledge that those are fleeting, that the good stuff that happens in terms of your kid got into a good college or you got the promotion at work or you purchased the car that you've been dreaming about for a long time, like those are all good things. But what happens is that the intensity and the duration of the emotions associated with achieving those things probably aren't as long and as intense as we expect. So that's one element of the framing. But then there's the opportunity every now and then. And I say every now and then because it's kind of exhausting. We're not philosophers. We're not sitting around thinking, well, what is the good life? We're not going to the Agora in white robes and debating these things. Maybe we're screaming at each other on Twitter about them a little bit. But there is an additional and not mutually exclusive opportunity for people to hit the pause button, take a breath, take a walk, literally or figuratively, and in their own mind or with their partner or kids or parents or friends or loved ones or community, just say, man, I get one bite at this amazing apple. What is it that I want? That's the hard work in achieving true wealth. You guys are kind of both mechanics and guides in someone's quest for funded contentment. And the mechanical piece is complicated. There's technical issues with financial planning, and some of them get pretty messy, and things need to be sorted out. But that stuff is sortable. If you haven't, though, done the other work in terms of mindset and thinking about what's truly important, and we can dive into what I think the four sources of contentment are, deep fulfillment or contentment, if you haven't done that work you're leaving really good stuff on the table. And so why not go there? Just to go there real fast, can you list them off real quick? Because if I was listening to this, I'd be like, well, what, what are, they? are they? Yeah. Spoiler alert, this is not original. It's just my framing. It's what I call the four C's, connection, control, competence, and context. We also might say belonging, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. But I chose four C's instead of BAMP. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. 
for literary reasons, we'll go with four C's, but everybody engages in mental model building all the time. There's an infinite amount of information in the world around us. And so by definition, we simplify, we build models of complex realities. A life-size map of something is not a map. It's just a recreation of the entire reality. So what I've done, my writing and coaching and what my team works on is helping people have better conversations about the four C's. And these stem from psychology, neuroscience, but also philosophy, theology. When we think about what is a good life, what is a meaningful life, where do we really grab that sense of contentment from? Well, it's in our social relationships, that sense of belonging. It's not something we like to have. We're genetically wired to be part of a group. It's just who we are. We're tribal, small t, tribal, and absent those social relationships, we're not in a great place. And you think about the epidemic of loneliness that is in rich Western societies right now that speaks to some of the struggles that we all have in terms of having that sense of connection. The second topic is control, autonomy, but really liberty, freedom, choice. Who doesn't want these things? Who doesn't want the opportunity to just do the things that you want to, to feel that you are unfettered in society in a small or a large scale? So that's really important. Now, keep in mind, there is this interesting tension between connection and control, because on the one hand, you want to be tied to the group. On the other side, you want to be unfettered. That's a deeper dive, but we feel that tension between freedom and belonging in our day-to-day. But the third dimension of contentment is competence, which is just being really good at something you care about. It's our job. It's our work. It's our vocation. Think about the phrase, making a living, as a way to describe what we do every day. That's a very value-laden thing because it's just not paying the bills. It's how we define who we are. When we used to go to parties pre-pandemic, maybe they're now happening again, but you go to a party and someone says, oh, what do you do? Spoiler alert, they don't care what you do. They care who you are, and they're using your job as some indicator of your identity. Work is deeply, deeply important to our sense of value and worth. And then the last C of the four C's is context, and that is being connected to something bigger than yourself. It's having some sense of purpose. And those historically over the millennia have fallen into, there's been two big categories, faith and place. So our religion, our spirituality, however you want to describe it or define it, it's a very personal decision. But the idea that you're connected to something much, much bigger than yourself and then place, whether that be patriotism or your hometown pride, we also get a lot out of that. So all in, here's a really, I think, somewhat straightforward mental model of the four sources of deep contentment in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to dig in, again, in your own mind or talking with loved ones, only after you've put in a little bit of work. And maybe it's two minutes, maybe it's two hours. But after a little bit of work, you can then ask a really awkward question. Can I afford those things? How much do those things cost? And why awkward? Because if our sense of connection to others, if that need and joy of belonging is truly important to us and who isn't it important for, well, you then ask about, well, what does it cost for me to belong to, however you define it? And awkward, but man, it opens a really big door to a place that people want to go. Yeah, it's so true. And I've witnessed this over my career. I know Jessica has witnessed it to a lesser extent, but certainly she's witnessed it too, where 
and I'm just making this saying up, but some of the poorest people I've ever met have all the money in the world because they can't connect those four things together. They can't figure out what the money is for and all they want is more and they have no contentment. He's one of your words. And it's interesting to see how other people who have, let's say, less money, who have it all figured out and have answered the question, what's the money for? They're completely happy and content in their lives because they have that consistency in their lives and they've put the money in some sort of context. I'll never tire of reinforcing the fact because I need to hear this too. I'm on this journey. I'm a guy. I got aging parents I help take care of. I've got three teenage kids. I got stuff. I never tire of reminding others, but really myself, that rich is a number, wealth is a mindset, and we are responsible for our own stuff. Yeah, the world's a noisy and intimidating place. It feels overwhelming. It feels very overwhelming right now to me. Fact is, we have agency. We have some control, not total control. We have some control. One of the most important and impactful conversation that individuals can have with their financial advisor, but again, it always comes back to what are you talking to yourself about? What's your self-talk? Is what am I in control of? What do I control? And the more that you can be explicit about, just draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper, two columns, control, don't control. You don't control the weather. You don't control the stock market. What do you control? Maybe you control some of the choices that you make about your portfolio. Do you control your emotional reaction to market volatility? Partly, but not entirely. We have a deep-seated evolutionary sense of danger, and it doesn't matter if it's a tiger in the jungle or if it's red lines on a graph. We feel fear, and there's no getting around that immediate reaction. But as sentient beings who have control and have perspective, we are able by ourselves, but increasingly with the better financial advisors to have conversations about, okay, let's take a breath and say, we can't control these things, but we can prepare for things like this because there's not much new under the sun in terms of markets that go up and down, economies that go through good times and bad, job cycles where it's going great and then somehow you're out of luck. We know these things happen. And we also know that the best time to fix your roof is when the sun is shining. So let's have hard conversations when it's relatively easy to do so. Yeah, you can't control the weather, but you can certainly control if you bring a rain jacket and umbrella along for the day. That's right. And if it's going to be a perfectly sunny day, you don't want to be schlepping around a rain jacket and umbrella because you might have a decent forecast as today's weather. But that can be a little bit burdensome. And so you make these choices on the margin in terms of how should I be prepared? How should I be prepared? You go back to, I think, 1654, and Louis Pasteur said that, no, it was 1854, and he said that chance favors the prepared mind. We all have it in our power to prepare our minds for things that might happen, knowing full well that we can't predict and we can't be fully, fully prepared. While you do quote Gertrude Stein, this is a favorite quote of mine. It's always stuck with me for some reason. Whoever said money can't buy happiness doesn't know where to shop. I think that's such a great quote. But putting that aside, let's ask the fundamental question here. Does money buy happiness? Yes, no, maybe. That's my joke, but serious answer. And it actually correlates to the types of happiness that we are talking about here. 
So as it relates to that day-to-day experienced happiness, it's very limited. We know both from extensive research, but also common sense intuition, that as long as you have enough to have food on the table and a roof over your head and a sense of safety, your income can double or quadruple or go into the stratosphere. And there's not a strong relationship between money and what I've called experienced happiness. We all have psychological set points. Some people are really cheerful. Some people are kind of glum or cranky, like people are people. And that set point can move a little bit over time. We can adapt and change a little bit. But for the most part, even when a great thing or a terrible thing happens, we revert to type. And so it's a bit back to this idea of the hedonic treadmill that we become accustomed to the good things and the bad things. And that's just part of remaining in balance as a human being. Ecstasy and depression, neither of those are very stable places to be for a long period of time. And so day-to-day, no. For the most part, people listening to this podcast, clients of yours, clients of mine, for the most part, money doesn't buy happiness. It can certainly buy lots of dopamine hits, but those are ephemeral. On the other side, when we talk about reflective happiness and we ask the hard questions about how we can afford a meaningful life, there is an argument that we can. There's a few different categories of things that we can purchase that really contribute to that deeper sense of well-being. Things like our relationships, experiences, and time. Those would be the three buckets that I would point to. So because our need and sense of belonging is so important, using money to stay connected to the people we love is really, really important. I think this is conventional wisdom now that experiences produce more happiness than material goods. Why is that? It's actually because experience tends to involve other people. That's one of two factors. And so it sort of ties back to relationships. And the second is that memories anticipation of, but especially memories of experiences tend to be more long-lasting than of material goods. And then the third bucket where money can buy, I'll say contentment as distinct from happiness, is time. This is kind of a slippery ball to hold on to. But if we think about our time and really our attention as our most limited asset and our depreciating asset to the extent that we can avoid inconvenience, purchase convenience, sort of having a fast pass through elements of our life where we're not wasting time, where we're buying back time. Those can be very meaningful. And what I see in my day-to-day in coaching financial advisors is that there's an increasing emphasis on how do you talk about time affluence? How do you talk about the trade-off between money and time, maybe using some of that extra money you have to buy time. You get into the weeds quickly in terms of someone's chosen lifestyle and what they're up to, but time affluence is such an important topic. And I think we're only now beginning to develop the skills to talk about what that actually means. Everybody deals with time affluence every single day of their life when they're making decisions about, am I going to order out? Am I going to order delivery food because I don't want to take the time to cook dinner? Or or here's a better one. I work hard Monday through Friday, so I don't want to wake up on Saturday morning and mow my lawn. So I pay somebody to mow the lawn because I want that time back to myself. We deal in time affluence all the time. I don't know if we put in the context of what you were just suggesting, which is actually thinking through it and determining 
if it is something that is important to plan for when you are considering your wealth? It is. I don't know if the objective is to outsource every imaginable thing such that you just have huge blocks of time. I don't know if I'm contradicting myself or just making things more complicated. I'm good at both. (laughs) But you think about paying the kid down the street to mow your lawn because you don't want to do it. Lots of people enjoy gardening and taking care of their lawn, and it's just a source of pride, and you don't want to give that up. But the time that it would be necessary that it would take to mow your own lawn and to take care of the hedges and plant the flowers and all that sort of stuff, if that's important to you, which it very well might be, I have lots of friends who are totally into that. Well, those hours, that commitment is being sourced from something else. And so you can begin to think about those trade offs, maybe anchor the any consideration of time affluence in the word that I never like to speak, but it's everywhere, which is busy. It's sort of just a common refrain. How's it going? I'm so busy. Are you? What does that mean? And busy as a badge of courage in where we are right now with society seems to be quite prevalent. And to me, I'm not a big fan of the word because I think many of us have the opportunity to set priorities however we see fit. And to me, people who overuse the word busy are sort of waving a white flag in the battle for agency. We have control, but we have to articulate and take control of what it is that's meaningful to us. And sometimes the word busy is a crutch when, in fact, we are just yearning for more focus, better prioritization, and money comes into it when we can think about the fact that we can purchase time in a variety of very specific ways, whether it's buying a more expensive flight that is nonstop instead of connecting or having someone mow our lawn. I mean, we go from the profound to the pedestrian pretty quickly in terms of how people want to purchase time, but it's on offer. And in the context of managing wealth and what we all do for a living, giving advice and trying to help people plan for the life that they want to, there is a relationship that exists between our current self and our future self, who we are now and who we will become. And proper planning helps frame that and give it some context. But can you talk a little bit about your opinion on how you strike you, meaning anybody, how someone strikes the balance between more and enough. Good. Well, let's just carve out the next five hours to explore (laughs) one of the most deeply important topics any of us could try to sort out. And let me plant a couple seeds here and we can go wherever you like. That's all to say there's not a super easy, crisp answer. What I will say is this. In addition to asking the question, am I going to be okay? The other big question is, how much is enough? And the reason that tends to be such a hard and slippery question to hold on to and come up with kind of a stable answer for is that we actually have, I call it a duality in the way we are as human beings, where we both want enough and we want more. And so when we ask how much is enough, There's actually a deeper question to ask, which is how do we balance desire with satisfaction? We have a growth instinct 
John Haidt, a famous social psychologist, calls it the progress principle. We want to have the sense that we're moving forward relative to where we've been and frankly, relative to others. So we want more in a healthy way. It leads us to strive and achieve and thrive and do great things. We also know that we can get over our skis in that regard, and that's where we get on that hedonic treadmill. The flip side, the enough piece, there is value and virtue in calm and stillness and presence. The final chapter of Geometry of Wealth, chapter 10, which I love all my chapters equally, but I think it's my favorite chapter. The chapter is titled You Are Here, which is a famous but short treatise by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist philosopher who passed away recently. And this idea that you are here and also you are now, think about the maelstrom of noise and choice and everything that kind of keeps us uncentered, unmoored so much of the time. That ability to be right here, right now is of enormous value, psychological value, physical value, financial value, spiritual value. The challenge in the spirit of I'm not solving anything here is just recognizing that there is a pendulum in our life where we go back and forth between wanting more and having enough, and they're both deeply important. If we are able to use the word metacognition, think about thinking, if we can think about the fact that in our lives, we're kind of like swinging back and forth between those two poles, and there's no sort of getting off the ride. It's literally how we're wired from a genetic point of view. We can begin to talk about how much is enough, in part by giving ourselves a little bit of grace, by giving ourselves a break, by accepting, understanding that that urge for more, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of the game. It's part of the way we are. One last question, then building off kind of what you were just talking about. You say in your book, a critical ingredient in the recipe of growing and staying wealth is expressing gratitude. So can you explain why gratitude and generosity are proven sources of contentment? It links back to a comment I made a few minutes ago about the importance of connection and belonging, and that to the extent that you can afford to buy, in some general sense, a continued connection to loved ones, that's going to be very meaningful for you, most likely. Specifically on gratitude, the wherewithal and the ability and the willingness to say thank you has remarkable benefits for our emotional health. It connects us to others. It inspires others. There's some pretty interesting psychological and neuroscientific research on gratitude that shows that it really triggers chemicals in our brain beyond dopamine, serotonin, and such that give us that sense of connection to others, of deeper happiness. And so that idea of gratitude, which has sort of two pieces to it, awareness and recognition. Awareness is that there's good stuff in this world. There's really good stuff. And the recognition is that some of that good stuff comes from others. If you can accept that awareness and that recognition and then go the next step to say thank you, write a note, express gratitude to yourself, there's a whole variety of gratitude, quote unquote, technologies. I'm not going to click for detail today on that, but there's a variety of ways in which we can express gratitude, both philosophically, but also empirically, we see that those expressions make a difference in the quality of our day-to-day -day lives. 
Well, I'm really grateful for this conversation. This was great, Brian. Thank you. I learned a lot. I encourage everyone to check out Brian's on Twitter. He's at Brian Portnoy. And again, his book is The Geometry of Wealth, How to Shape a Life of Money and Meaning. It's a fantastic book. Really encourage everyone to pick it up. It dives deeper into a lot of what we've been talking about here today. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. And I also really appreciate you coming on as well. So that's it for today's Off the Wall podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this pod because it really does help us grow. And be sure to visit monumentwealthmanagement.com for more resources, videos, of course, our Off the Wall blog, as well as access to more episodes of this podcast that can help you with the question, what is the point of my wealth and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? And with that, we will catch you later. Later.